Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Glad you could join me. Hope you learned something. Enjoy the camaraderie that we express for each other in the sport, the habitat, the birds, and particularly the dogs. We're going to get deep into that one with my well, it's a wonder I haven't had him on the podcast before. Phil Swain is well known in the world of the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association as a, well, a member from way back, uh, also a hunt test judge, avid wild bird hunter, does his own share of dog training. We're going to learn all about those things and who knows what else, because Phil and I, generally are making small talk uh, as we're trailing behind a dog undergoing a test so this will be my first chance to go deep into the weeds with phil swain talking versatile hunting dogs and wild bird hunting uh also uh we'll get to the upland nation glossary we're on the letter h and uh i've got a chance for you to win a shotgun in our hero contest from audio cardio it's all made possible by roughland performance kennels sage and breaker gun care products pointer shotguns dr tim's natural performance dog food mid valley clays and shooting school and audiocardio.com how's your training season going it's also a good time to get started on your shooting i uh, just got some more ammo thank you ryan for uh, working hard at finding ammo for me especially for that 28 gauge um haven't gotten deep into that one yet this season but i am working hard with flick on steady to wing shot and fall which seems to be the sticking point for almost everybody these days I told you last week we were to the point where I'm I'm flying a covey of homing pigeons, uh, hopefully to keep him steady on big bunches, and then hopefully on walking around birds because I'm just letting them out basically out of a milk crate, which works really well sometimes. I had to cobble it all together, and as a music major, mechanical stuff is a little bit tough for me, but if it's just a milk crate, a wooden lid, and a length of rope even i can figure it out so we're having a good time with that and he is making a little progress uh and then of course that's when the hawks show up yeah we live right on the edge of a national forest so we've got our share of accipiters and buteos including cooper's hawks and red tails and around here the red tails don't mind taking a flying bird every once in a while instead of a rodent so we're up against it in that regard so i fly my birds very infrequently and uh maybe you're uh you know you can relate to that as well anyway like george hickok said no birds no bird dog hey i got a lot more to talk about including uh your insights uh on why you would not take a newcomer hunting that's all coming up after we talk to phil swain about wild birds and versatile hunting dogs we are brought to you in part by sage and breaker gun care products crafted at the highest caliber sign up for the mailing list and you'll get first notice of the very rare sales and also the new products coming down the pike check out the videos no matter what kind of shotgun you own fred bowman everybody at sageandbreaker.com has a video for you you never know you might just learn something i did and if you're looking for a new gun to clean, 
LegacySports.com is where you shop the entire line of pointer shotguns, semi-automatics, over-and-unders, youth guns, high-end to entry-level, target, field guns, and most of them can can be ordered in that Cerakote finish, three different colors, Cerakote finish. They look cool. They really caught the eye of everybody at Pheasant Fest, and boy, did I have a good time showing those off to everybody. Learn more about pointer shotguns at LegacySports.com. Well, like I said in the introduction, I I cannot believe it took this long to get him on the podcast. I'm grateful he is. He's over there on the other side of the hill from me, but I usually see him as we're both trundling around a NAVDA hunting test of one way, shape, or form. Phil Swain, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. Thank you. Um, I'm really honored that you have invited me on, uh, and I appreciate it. And may I say just in starting out that, uh, I, you know, your, uh, your affinity for people and ability to relate to people is p- particularly well related, I think, in the article that you wrote in the uh, March-April issue of, uh, this year of the Pointing Dog Journal, sharing advice from people and so forth. That's a really good article, and it's folksy and down-to-earth and, and just good advice. So thanks for that, Scott. Well, I appreciate that, Phil, and I hope Jake Smith is listening right now. He's the editor of that magazine. In fact, he owes me money right now. So, uh, yeah, there you go. And another piece coming up, which uh, which I think will be just as fun. You're you're very kind, and you know, one of the, the, the that's the reason you and I are here today, though, as well. We we each feel the need to share some information with some people sometimes, and here's an opportunity for both of us to do that. But let's start with the really important stuff. Uh, how did your last hunting season go? Uh, it was pretty sparse, uh, to tell you the truth. With the, with the pandemic and everything, I, you know, norm, normally in my hunting season, uh, I, I, I try to get over into the Owyhees, and so that, that requires me to be out for at least three or four days because it's a long drive for me to get over to eastern Oregon, and so that means that I'm staying in a motel um, uh, and eating in restaurants. So I, I was kind of reluctant to do that this last year. So um, a lot of my hunting was pay to hunt down at Lucky Mew Valley Pheasants and uh, on Towards the end of the season, uh, I went with a good friend of mine, and we we were over by Hepner, and I, I have also been bothered by uh, my knees, and so I was conservative in that regard. So we were over in Hepner and, and uh, chucker hunting, and, you know, the first day went okay, and then the second day we decided to... Uh, to, be, uh, to reach out a little bit more, and I got into some... Uh, mountain climbing, which is, um, you know, part of chucker hunting. And my knee was hurting a little bit as I climbed the mountain. Uh, and when I got up on top of this mountain, I thought, man, this is really painful. And I started down a little bit, and I was just getting shooting pain from the knee, and I thought, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get down. Wow. I may have to sit down and slide down this mountain. So. So my uh, chucker hunting season this last year was uh, sparse. You know, I 
like I say, I usually try to uh, travel to the Hawaii's. I, I go to the Dakotas or, or to northeastern Montana or even down to Arizona or New Mexico to, uh, to hunt quail down there. But, but with COVID and uh, my knee this year was not the year for that. It's tough getting older, Scott. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say, so I'm told, but I, I'm living it every day now. And speaking of knees, I'm managing them intensely for that very reason. I was up in that country twice this past season. And uh, while it's not the worst climbing, it's uh, in the top 10 over there. (laughs) So I I know of what you speak. Um, The other thing was, if this was a year for bad knees, if last season was a season for bad knees, uh, it was the right one because, uh, you know, the drought made for sparse cover, made for small hatches, made for scattered birds. uh, I've told other people before, you know, it was I, I hunted less, I went to fewer states, I shot fewer birds, but it was still a pretty good season, and part of it was right up there. Did you see any Hungarian partridge when you were up there in that Hepner area? I did not. Oh, that, I did not. That was the and most part of that may 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 have been that my range was a little yeah. bit limited in yeah. getting around because I I was being very careful. Yeah. Well, I don't blame you because once you're up on top you know you got the worst of it's to come <laughs> i was yeah it it took me uh, over an hour I, I i ended up back down on a road after getting down that mountain and i my gps said i was about a mile from the truck and it took me well over an hour to cover that mile back to the truck ow i'm hurting already just hearing that <laughs> You know, I, I, I'll never forget. This has been the reminder to me over the years for, uh, number one, hunting with a partner. Number two, bringing a really serious survival kit, no matter where you are. Um, I was up in uh, in some mountains in southeast Oregon, a little bit west of where you like to go. And, uh, you know, it was a four-foot, no, it was a two-foot drop off of a boulder. I was scouting off a boulder. I jumped off the boulder and landed not quite right on a couple smaller rocks and i thought you know that could have been a broken leg and here i am in the darkest place in the lower 48 nobody knows where i am yeah that's another argument for one of those spot locator beacons which i honest everybody it's the truth i never i never leave the truck without it so uh i don't either um (laughs) i have i have one of those and uh you know my wife is adamant, you know, and one of the things that I've also done from time to time is I will leave a map in the truck truck mm. with, uh, I carry two walkie talkies and I will leave one of the walkie talkies in the truck and a map and, uh, some notes about where I'm intending to go. And then I carry the other walkie talkie, um, so in addition to my spot <laughs> i love it that's a great idea i'm going to make a note of that uh, and that's that's after i give one of my buddies a walkie-talkie uh so that yeah. he, he can find me once in a while so good yeah i i wish the uh i wish the garmin gps that i use with my dogs had the uh the radio in it yeah you know i mean you you can share positions with a with a hunting partner but it would just be nice to have that walkie-talkie incorporated in that uh garmin alpha gps but you know you know you 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 mentioned i'm sorry did i interrupt no you i was i interrupted you go ahead 
you mentioned uh, carrying a, a, a survival kit, and you know, I I learned that lesson uh, really the hard way, and sometimes, uh, especially chucker hunting guys, will laugh at me because my my vest with nothing in it but uh, a few shells uh, easily adds five pounds to the weight that I'm carrying. But uh, several years ago, I was hunting grouse uh, in Sawyer County, Wisconsin, uh, up out of Park Falls, which is reputed to be the grouse hunting capital of the uh, of the world. And I was hunting with a, a friend of mine, and we went into a uh, on a trail. Uh, up there hunting grouse and it it was one of those days where the clouds were down in the treetops there wasn't any sun it was kind of drizzling and and wet and just kind of the kind of weather that only a dumb hunter would go out in but anyway um, we went out late in the afternoon and we're following a trail and you know the grouse hunting was actually pretty good but it was pretty wet um, and, and we got in there and two things happened. It began to get dark and then the trail ended and it got more and more swampy and the darker it got, the more swampy it got. And pretty soon we were, uh, climbing over deadfalls and we were in water that was, uh, knee deep and sometimes thigh deep. Oh and, my. Uh, you know, it, we, it, it got so dark, like I say, the clouds were down in the top of the tree, so there wasn't any moon nor stars, and the sun was gone, and so we pressed on, and my buddy was behind me, and he said, I think you're taking us in circles, and I said, well, okay, why don't you get in front? So anyway, uh, we finally got up on kind of a, uh, a cedar stump where we were up out of the water, and he said, I think I can walk us out of, out of here. Our plan uh, was there There were two roads, the one that we had come in and on and started a path, following a path off that road, and it was about four or five miles across to another road. And that had been our plan, was to go across to that other road. Well, to make a long story short, I had had uh, surgery on my other knee, oh, or meniscus, <laughs> uh, about... Oh, I don't know, seven or eight months before. So, you know, in the water and climbing over deadfalls, it got, I just, in my Navy training, uh, you know, survival and going through Sears school prior to going to Vietnam and all that stuff said, when you're lost, just sit down and wait, you know. And so I, I told my buddy, I said, I'm going to just stay here. I managed to get up on the log where I was up out of the water. The dogs were tired, and survival kit was my theme going into this. <laughs> I was not carrying any extra water. I was not carrying any snacks. I was not carrying a survival blanket. I was not carrying any of that stuff. Um, anyway, uh, about midnight, um, one of the other guys that we had been hunting with, I guess, finally figured out that we weren't going to walk out of the woods, and he went and got the uh, Sawyer County Sheriff, and and uh, what they do when they get hunters lost in those woods up there, which apparently is not uncommon, is they set up klaxons, one on one road and one on the road that we intended to go to. And like I say, we'd been shooting grouse, so I was low on ammunition, and you know we had no matches, and None of that stuff. Anyway, wow. finally, my buddy said, I think I can walk out of here. And he said, 
I'm going to do that. Your knee's hurting, so you stay here, and I'll come back and get you. And by golly, that's uh, that's what he did. The Sawyer County uh, Sheriff's Department, uh, long may they live, uh, has a search and rescue guy. It's one guy and the deputy sheriff, and they came in, and they interviewed the uh, the hunting partner that, that had gone and gotten them, and they said, you know, where did these guys go in? Where do they intend to go? What kind of shape are they in? What kind of woodsmen are they, et cetera, et cetera. And the guy, the, the search and rescue guy said, okay, well, they're, they're within about 200 yards of this spot. Oh, you're kidding me. And, and so my, uh, my hunting partner who was with me walked out and actually met those guys a couple of miles from where I was. And they, they turned around, and that, that search and rescue guy, using a compass and a flashlight, walked back in and found me. <laughs> and wow. So we, we stepped out on the road that we had intended to step out on about uh, 6, 6.30 the next morning. So Ooh. after that experience, Scott, I always carry a survival kit. <laughs> well, there is the lesson for everybody, and I couldn't have done it better. And I was the survival kit guy for our Boy Scout troop as an assistant scoutmaster. I, I, I wish I could have told that. I will tell that story to everybody from now on. <laughs> Um, and, and you're absolutely right. All of you did everything virtually, virtually everything wrong, uh, yep. but, but you learned from it and that's good. And I'm glad you're here to tell about it because you're helping somebody else as well. Hey, everybody, you're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. That's Phil Swain with the adventure stories. I'm Scott Linden, the host. Phil, let's hit a, a lighter note here. Uh, tell me about your dogs these days. I know you have a young one. We're going to talk about training and that sort of thing. So who else is in your string these days? Well, I, I have uh, four German short hairs. Um, I have an older short hair, um, you know, and, and when I got him, um, you know, I was, I, you know, I, I've been involved in NAVDA since the, uh, the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association since the 70s. And, you know, periodically I would, would test dogs, but for me it's always been about hunting, not so much about testing. And so I got this dog, and, and he was a pretty nice dog, and, and he was a good hunting dog. Um, but I never invested uh, the amount of training uh, time and so forth. I just figured, well, he's a good dog. He'll get it. And so uh, he's he's now 12 going on 13. And, and I finally did get him through a uh, NAVDA utility test. Um, and But he's always been a management project because <laughs> in terms of desire on a scale of 1 to 10, he's about a 12. Uh, so now he's old and he's kind of arthritic and I have to be careful when I run him, run him. And then I've got, uh, I've got another male who's now about seven and, and he, uh, I went the opposite way with him. I invested a lot of time and effort in the training for him and he is, he is superb. Uh, as a matter of fact, he's good enough that on occasion I've guided with him down at, uh, Lucky Mew Valley pheasants because I could rely on him to hold points and and hold the birds and then I was so impressed with him and thought he was such a good dog uh, 
that I got a good friend of mine named Jeff Merriman to um, use his bitch, and so we bred uh, my male, whose name is Skipper, and Jeff's dog, Dakota, and so we got a, a litter of puppies out of that, and so I have one of the puppies from that litter, and staying with my Navy lineage, that dog is named Captain, and she's 18 months now, and I'm hoping to run her in a utility test in August, um, you know, and she's she's everything that I hope she would be. And so, uh, that being said, <laughs> my ability as a trainer is being tested. The uh, the good news is that that my wife is a much better and much smarter trainer than I am. And while I have been fooling with my knee, she has been working with this uh, young female, and so she's coming along, so I have high hopes. Well, you just discovered the secret sauce there, and I've I got to dig into that a little bit. Number one, first off, I agree. I think the more dogs we have, the better trainers we become, or is it that we pick better dogs? I'm not sure, but <laughs> how the heck... Did you get your wife involved in this whole game, and, and uh, especially the training side of things? You know, my wife and I have been married for uh, 53 years, and uh, her dad was uh, with the Forest Service, was a ranger with the Forest Service, so she was raised in the woods, and she's just, uh, you know, she's, she's one of those people that um, she's always able uh, to do the thing of walk a mile in the other person's shoes. Yeah. She's very empathetic. And she is, while she is a totally independent and smart person, she's very supportive of me. And so it's just been something that we've just always been together. And part of that may be her heritage because she was raised uh, in the woods, not necessarily with dogs, but certainly with big game hunting and fishing and so forth. And her mom and dad uh, were very involved in that. And so, you know, when, when I, when we, when we decided years ago, I was stationed in Brunswick, Maine, and one of my squadron mates uh, had Irish setters and I didn't know anything about dogs. And I thought Irish setters were hunting dogs. And well, nowadays some of them are. <laughs> um, but back then, <clears throat> you know, I just thought they were beautiful dogs and hunting dogs. So, Anyway, we got a pup from uh, my squadron mate, and, um, you know, we had some real adventures. For years and years and years, he was the only Irish setter that had ever qualified in a NAVDA utility test. Oh, my gosh. That, that is <laughs> remarkable. Maybe even to this day now that I think about it. But uh, con congratulations. I mean, that in itself <laughs> is, is, is a big step. Yeah, I got to start working on my wife as well. Uh, she she tolerates me once in a while because she just loves watch, watching the dog. But, it, you know, it's just like when I make TV shows, you know, no, she doesn't go it's too intense for her because that's the way i get when when there's cameras in front of me you know um we've talked around it a whole bunch and and i think i know your answer but i you know for the record what is it you love most about bird hunting i like watching the dogs for me there's no point in going if i don't you know I, there there are a lot of I, i've looked at uh a lot of different um 
pay to hunt places, uh, hunting preserves across the Dakotas and uh, so forth. And, you know, but, but they have their dogs that they want you to use. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and for me, there's no point in going if, you know, I just like watching the dogs. You know, in, in the article that you wrote in the uh, Pointing Dog Journal that I referred, referred to, uh, you talk about um, uh, walking along and just watching watching the dog, you know, and just uh, in a very simple surrounding. Like I go down to St. Louis Pond, where there's a big dog training area down mm. by Woodburn. Here I know I it well. I think that was okay. actually the first natural ability test I ever did. Was right there. Well, sometimes. I'll just be walking behind my dogs and I'll just be, uh, you know, praying as I walk along, thanking the Lord that I could be out there doing that and just enjoying uh, the ambiance. And, you know, I thought you really hit that note in your article. I thought that was great, Scott. Well, thank you. And uh, and you're, you're of like mind with me and probably 99.9% .9 of the people who will hear this interview. So... It really is all about that kind of stuff and, and a whole, you know, the rest of it as well. You know, I, I was, I'm constantly amazed that number two on the list when I ask this every year in my survey is camaraderie, fellowship, friends and family. Um, that, sure. that just, uh, that last season for me, that was, that was the most prevalent uh, uh, aspect that I, I, I finally was able to, enumerate had lots of that in fact got off the phone yesterday from one of the guys that i got to know way better as a result of last year in the serendipity that i was exposed to a whole bunch of times out there hey you know we're just getting warmed up around here on the upland nation podcast phil is a uh, long time navda judge as well as a wild bird hunter and a trainer of course we're going to talk about all of those things and how they might benefit you whether it is a young dog or you're like me trying to polish up a dog that like phil's has a lot of drive and uh needs a you know i guess i'll call it a tight lead once in a while so stick around for that and uh, a few other things including our upland nation glossary we're down to the letter h wow uh, what am i going to do double back when i get to z and the proverbial question you're not taking any newcomers hunting why the heck not i'll have your answers to that question and a whole bunch more with phil swain coming up in just a minute phil relax for a moment while i take care of a little business including speaking on behalf of audiocardio.com and if you didn't hear that let me just repeat it audiocardio.com it's a workout for your ears you may not think your ears have been affected by all that shooting but believe me they have and now there is a way to fix that to at least some degree we call it sound therapy you strengthen your hearing it's an app you just plug your earbuds into your phone and you listen you can do everything else you need to do just listen subconsciously as you're going about your business it's physical therapy for your ears 14 day free trial just go get the app it's free watch the two minute video at audio cardio what did i say <laughs> watch the two minute video at audiocardio.com it's much more clear than my speech 
And if you like the free trial, you can get that app for as little as eight bucks and 33 cents a month. Strengthen your hearing with audiocardio.com. So you can hear your dog whining in the Roughland Kennel. No, they just don't do that. They love their kennels, roughlandkennels.com. New colors, handles included with every kennel these days, easy to move them. They support pheasants forever. They've built all new molds for all of their gear, which also has uh, enabled them to make new gear, a wide variety of accessories at roughlandkennels.com. Rough is spelled just like Flick would spell it, R-U-F-F, landkennels.com. All the gear you have now from Roughland Kennels will integrate seamlessly with the new stuff. So buy yourself some water storage, gear storage, a fan, you name it, and it'll all work with your old stuff as well. And we are back with Phil Swain, my buddy, a fellow hunt test participant. Uh, we have walked more than a mile in each other's shoes. I'm not a judge, but I've been trailing you once in a while as a gunner or probably some other troublemaker. Phil, thank you on behalf of all NAVDA members who've ever taken a hunt test anywhere in the entire galaxy for your hard work. I don't think everybody realizes this is all volunteer work, isn't it? Yep, it sure is. Why would you want to spend so many weekends, not only so many weekends, so many miles in the course of a day? I don't even want to guess how many miles. You've probably figured it out. Tell us about a NABDA test and how much walking you do. Typically, in a NABDA test, in a natural ability test, you're walking somewhere between 10 and 12 miles because you have you can have a maximum of uh, 10 natural ability dogs in a test. And so, you know, that's that's just the mileage that you put on. And a utility test, it's a little bit less, uh, maybe 8 to 10 miles. But, yeah, it is. it can be physically pretty demanding. And you do that for three days, uh, regardless of the weather usually. So it can be really hot or raining and uh so it, it can be challenging. And we've both been in the really hot and the raining. Uh, the the biggest, best, most memorable washout I had literally was over there by Silverton. Maybe you were there. Uh, maybe you were sympathetic, but um, it rained all night. And um, <laughs> in fact, I'll never forget. In fact, I, you were judging my young dog at the time because the first bird that got up in the field portion of that test flew about a foot and then it was katie bar the door it took us a half hour to get what was left of that bird out of his mouth before we were set off to the next aspect of the test and thank you for not laughing out loud at me during that test but well that's because we've all been there we have haven't we you know what what is the biggest uh what is the bigger takeaways you find whether it's training tips for yourself or other observations about dogs or dog handlers. What's your takeaway from, from a NAVDA test? I, I guess two things uh, that, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, I think I mentioned that I, I started with an Irish setter, setter and I was in, uh, 
in Brunswick, Maine at the, at the time. That was still a naval air station at that time. And from there I went down to, uh, I was assigned in, in Washington, D.C. And so I was associated with the Potomac chapter. And so I think, you know, the people, uh, I've I just met some, you know, some really, really great people. And, and again, I keep referring to your article in the Pony Dog Journal, but where you say that if somebody says that they've learned everything they know uh, and haven't had help and advice, they're lying. And and that's just, that certainly is my case. I've had a lot of help, a lot of coaching uh, along the way. And, and I've had uh, NAVDA people who have just demonstrated an, an incredible amount of uh, patience and tolerance of me because, you know, I, I tend to be kind of a type A personality and, um, you know, people have just, you know, put up with that. And I guess they, I don't know, because of the dogs, they've been able to kind of pull me through and help me out a lot. So that's one thing. The other thing is that, um, you know, I want to have the best dog that I can. And there are a lot of different venues for uh, pursuing that uh, with a dog. But one of the things that I like about NAVDA it, is that, you are encouraged to train your own dog, and and again, back to the people. People will help you learn how to do that. And sometimes the advice is, you know, I I don't need to hear that from you, but you know, and and I I I do that with my wife sometimes. And after I get through being mad at what she's told me, I step back and try what she says, and she's usually right. And so I, you know, the it the. I guess the teamwork in building a better dog, um, which means I get a lot better hunt because I'm not out there screaming and yelling and blowing the whistle all the time at my dog. I have a dog that is engaged with me and working with me. So I guess those two things, the people yeah. and and having a better dog are are big pluses for me. You know, and, and it wasn't at that test, but a subsequent test down the road with another dog for me, maybe where I, I actually passed. Um, somebody said something very similar. You remember uh, what Dixon, Dick Sinclair? Yeah, sure. Well, he said something at the end of a test. If you're not familiar, listeners, with um, with NAVDA, one of the things that happens is at the end of the day, everybody gathers around and the judges read the scores of every dog. And so it's it's kind of come to Jesus time for a lot of people for a lot of good reasons, but it's a little bit stressful for people who haven't, uh, you know, faced a lot of that kind of thing before. Um, Dick said before he read any of the scores one day, he said something like, you know, anybody who goes through this testing process and any dog that passes any of these tests is likely going to be the best dog in the field on any given day, no matter where you are and who you're with. And he's absolutely true. And part of it is because we learn from each other. Part of it is the test is so well structured to create good hunting dogs. Would you amplify on that part just a little bit? You know, we all know what a field trial looks like or sounds like, but the, the NAVDA test uh, does some things that maybe aren't covered in other places, are they? No, I don't. I, I think that's true. One of the things uh, that lends itself to what you just said is that it's, an, it's not competitive. 
uh, one dog is not competing against another dog. And so regardless of the dog's breed or age, uh, the dog is competing against a standard. And and that's why becoming a judge in in NABDA is a fairly challenging uh, prospect. You know, it's a minimum of two years apprenticing uh, to learn how to define the, t- the standard in accordance with the NAVDA aims and rules. And so uh, the dog competes against the standard. So you can have all the dogs that get the maximum score, or you can have none of the dogs get the maximum score. Um, you know, So you don't have winners and losers, so to speak, other than an individual perception. So, and, and the test is oriented... Uh, to the extent that we're able to. I mean, obviously it is a test, and so some of it is uh, a little bit synthetic and manufactured, but it's uh, it's oriented towards a hunting environment. So if you think about just the, uh, the, the field search portion of the test, there are seven things that are uh, evaluated during the uh, the field search, and that, of course, is the dog search, uh, its use of nose, its desire, its cooperation, its pointing, um, you know, it, the way that it covers the ground. So things that you would want your dog to be doing and you would want evaluated for a hunting scenario. So that, you know, and since these are supposed to be versatile dogs, there also is a water portion of the test because we want to evaluate the dog's affinity for water and there's also a tracking portion and the tracking portion you know ultimately it's all about conservation of game because when we're hunting we don't want to lose a bird that has maybe been uh you know you know if you shoot like i do where you wingtip a bird and knock it down you, you want a dog that will go out and track that bird and recover it so that the bird is not wasted and so there's a, a tracking component in the natural ability test, and that's all in the hunting context. And on top of the hunting context, there's also a significant amount of uh, of what I will call practical obedience uh, work as well. Everything from Absolutely. W- walking at heel through a you know basically an obstacle course to uh, you know in the in the more advanced the older dog tests uh, you know remaining still at the blind and and uh, well going all the way to the invitational test where um, where they they need to to honor another dog's point for example all of those things and more are uh, covered by the way if if you're interested in NAVDA training and NAVDA testing everybody i did a uh, thanks to the help of a lot of people including my friends at ugly dog hunting we were able to make an episode of wing shooting usa at the 2015 navda invitational test uh, go to the youtube channel scott linden outdoors and 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 take a look at that that is um, that is the world series of dog training i i can't describe it any better way than that shows you all of those things that we've been talking about in the NAVDA world but let's let's get relevant to a lot of us who are right now looking at a 12 week old or an 18 week old bundle of fur that uh when it's not peeing on the floor it's uh trying to learn all about how to become a better hunting dog phil what are some of the the most important things we need to do with a young dog early on in their career 
I, you know, one of the things uh, that I think is, I think it's extremely important to have the dog engaged with you. Yeah. And and yeah. by that I mean when you when you walk into the yard, when you go to the kennel, when you walk into the room, for that dog you become the most important thing around. And and I think you do that by, um, you know, I I I am a great fan of. Um, positive-based training, so, and I use treats a lot. And so if I, if I have the dog, I have a green, I live in the city, so I, I don't have a big expanse of land to train on, uh, but I do have a green space right behind my house. So I can take my dog out there, that puppy, um, I can have that puppy on a lead, and I can let the dog maybe the lead is uh, 10 or 15 feet long and i can and i can let that puppy run out a little bit and run around and then i will very happily run around and call the dog's name and clap my hands and when that dog comes into me they get a little treat and i i'm just spending time with the dog and getting the dog engaged with me i don't need to do uh, a whole bunch of training at that young age, what I'm doing is getting the dog to recognize its name and getting the dog to recognize that when it comes into me, it gets a reward. That's a good thing. So anyway, that, that, that would be the basic, I think, uh, you know, there, there is a, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this or not, but there, there is a, uh, a guy named Michael Ellis and, and Michael, is uh, uh, he's on Learberg.com, and I've watched. He he primarily trains protection dogs, and uh, a few years ago, my sister-in-law lives down in New Mexico, and she was working with a professional trainer, and they were training Malinois, uh dogs for protection. And he was he's a re- retired uh, eye surgeon. Uh, he sold his practice in North Carolina and came to New Mexico and bought a ranch. And so he's training protection dogs for police departments and so forth. And so I was watching the training. And if you've watched uh, any of the obedience with uh, a protection dog, their level of obedience compared to what we see in our hunting dogs, it's like we're the Mickey Mouse Club. (laughs) They're the the pros. because those dogs can be dangerous, you know. And you think about three thousand pounds of pressure and a bite. And for our dogs, the uh, the the prey drive for the bird is what sparks those dogs. Yeah. For a protection dog, the prey drive is to the bite. You watch those dogs when they're biting and their tails are wagging, their ears are up, their eyes are bright. So anyway, I I I asked this guy. I said. Well, he asked me, he said, um, how do you train your dog? Uh, do you ever use treats? And at that time, I said, nah, I don't do any of that stuff. I, I might pull a treat out of my pocket thinking it was a shotgun shell and stick it in my bag. And he just kind of went, oh, okay. But most of his training uh, was started using treats and building engagement with the yeah. dog. yeah. And so I learned from him. And so then um, there's there's a guy <clears throat> here in the local area named Ron Garrison. And, and Ron uh, turned me on to Michael Ellis, 
and the type of training that he does, which is a reward-based training. So I started watching some of his videos, and then I got, you know, again, back to your article and the points out to more help from people. I wrote an article on training and sent it to the president of our local chap- NAVDA chapter, Howard Meyer, and he said, you know, what we don't do enough with our dogs is praise. And so I rewrote the article, and, you know, that praise and being excited. You know, as men, sometimes we're really reluctant to go, oh, good dog, you're doing so well, wow, that, you know, and we don't do that. And, and you know, the dogs really respond to that. So anyway, yeah, that's a long-winded answer to your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, no, but it's absolutely spot on, and, and I'll give you two examples. First is I was watching a guy work some cow dogs over the weekend and he, oh, yeah. he he's all about the same thing and the interesting part about that was the young dog he had some 13 week old uh, border collies and and he he would turn them loose in a pen of sheep and he did exactly what i if i went up to him afterwards i said y- you know this is how we introduce young dogs to birds we put them out we let them get real excited and then that's okay for one. Now let's go back to bonding again. You know, you understand what the, the, the goal is there, whether it's the bite, the birds, the sheep, it doesn't matter. That's number one. Um, treats. Absolutely. He's all over that, but you mentioned something that is absolutely true. And that is praise. Praise of course is a reward as well. And especially when you deliver it in that way, uh, and I'll just say it one more time for the record, a very well-known versatile dog trainer who who competes and judges over there in germany where they figured out this stuff the first time around she and her fellow female dog handlers are probably getting the best work i've ever seen out of hard-headed deutsch drahtars because they all talk like this when they're working with their adult dogs too and yep I think there's something to to that, it, it, and I I wish uh, one I have one regret. By the way, you're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden. That's Phil Swain, expert in all oh, so many worlds, and we haven't even gotten to tuba playing yet. But but <laughs> before Ed Bailey passed, and thank you, Ed. I know you're up there still helping people. Um, I wanted to ask him about tone of voice and how other animals express that this guy was a master at that he was a behaviorist at the university of guelph and he you know he was helpful to me in many regards have you noticed the same thing is it really about tone of voice is that what gets those dogs so psyched even the protection dogs (laughs) you know i i often remark that i think god had a lot of fun when he made dogs um because they 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 read us so well. You know, if you're anxious or apprehensive or ner- nervous, uh, the dogs can smell that. Uh, if, if you do any re- research into how a dog's nose works, uh, it, it's a fascinating research. But in addition to that, they read your body language. So if you know that, if, if you know that they, they can, can be used to diagnose uh, kidney disease or diabetes or all of those kinds of things because, be, because of their nose sensitivity, and, uh, and, and if you know that they, you, you can 
watch them read your body language, why would you think that they would not respond to your voice? Yeah. And your tone of voice. I, you know, and, and I can see this with my young puppy. She's 18 months old, and I had her out at St. Louis Ponds yesterday. I took her out uh, Sunday afternoon after church, and we were out to, with my wife, and it was not not a good day for me. For There were a lot of people out there, and I was angry because everybody was taking up my space. Anyway, on uh, Sunday afternoon during the training, I was just really intense with her, and her whole performance was... Uh, shadowed by that. Yesterday, I took her out, and I remembered, hey, she's 18 months old, just lighten up, just enjoy the run, just let her, you know, and so my my body language was different, my tone of voice was different, and her performance was totally different. So yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, I'll never forget the, uh, the, the one natural ability test where me and um, probably Buddy uh, at the time actually got a uh, you know, 112 points. That's the highest score. And, uh, it, it was a, a revelation like that the day before overtrain, yeah. overtrain, go out, going to train <laughs> where the test is so that you can overtrain some more. And then it just, maybe I hit a branch as I was walking under a tree or something, but all of a sudden I realized it's too late. Now it's time to have a good, you know, to have fun convey that to the dog and sure enough it worked and and it's true in hunting situations training situations and all of that bonding that takes place as a result of it i mean you don't i just wrote a piece for somebody else uh, on how um um you know you, you don't bond with a dog when you're mad at it in fact you're building a barrier um so create positive opportun- opportunities to be positive and leverage those. Am I making any sense? It makes sense to me. Uh, I, I'm I'm right in line with you. That's absolutely right. You know, one of the things that I encountered, we were talking about treats, and since we're talking about voice inflection and body language, one of the questions that I asked uh, Dr. Ed Miller when I was down in New Mexico, I said, well, how do you transition from, from treats as the reward? Yeah. Uh, to rewarding the dog when you're not going to use treats or you don't have treats. And and he demonstrated that with body language and voice. Yeah. And so uh, that's how you transition from treats because eventually you're not going to, you know, and in a NAVDA test you can't use treats. So at some point in your training you have to tra- transition, and that's the bonding uh, with your dog that you get to, you know, where the dog is engaged with you and, and that dog responds to you, to your voice and to your body language and doesn't need a treat because, because the praise is the treat. There you go. And, uh, and that praise can be physical, verbal, um, and everything in between. Um, Should be both. (laughs) Talking young dogs again. And, and, uh, so many people are, are working with young dogs this time of year. It's, it's, you know, top of mind for a lot of folks. What is the, the biggest mistake you see us doing when we're, when we're working with a puppy? Uh, Starting out with an e-collar, using an e-collar incorrectly, yeah, um, and getting a dog turned off, not understanding how to use an e-collar, and along with that, just realizing that that, that this is a, this is a puppy, you know. Then and like a, 
like a very young child. They, they, they may have a short attention span. And if they're not getting something that you're trying to do, maybe you're trying to get the dog to, to whoa, and the dog just isn't getting it, um, you know, you need to, to think about what you're doing. First of all, if you're angry and getting upset, you need to stop the training. Yeah. It's, it's time to stop. But if they're not getting, um, go back to something that they do know how to do and end your training on a positive note. Uh, but I think the direct answer to your question is just trying to move the dog fast ahead, faster, faster than the dog is ready to go, and uh, and getting really hard on the dog. Getting and and we tend to get frustrated and angry, and and I I think that's a mistake. And I and I also think, as I said, and I want to emphasize, incorrect of the use of the e-collar or overuse of the e-collar is a can be a real disaster that can create unrepairable problems yeah that uh, you know we there are still uh, there is still a camp that thinks uh, e-collars are about punishment and uh, uh, there are in, any number of ways <laughs> to describe the right way to use it uh, why don't you summarize how how you how you would use an electronic collar? Um, the electronic collar is um, to be used to reward correct behavior, and and it is to stimulate, not to shock the dog. Um, and so, when you when you first put that e collar on the dog, um, you know, I, I think that the collar should, should be on the dog for, you know, a couple hours so the dog forgets that it's there. Yeah. And then you may want to start out with a tone or whatever. But in, 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 in any event, in adjusting the level of stimulation, um, and again, Michael Ellis uh, has a very good demonstration. He's not a big fan of e-collars, but anyway... Uh, you have to be very careful, and you start at the lowest possible level with that e-collar, and you're looking for any response from the dog. Um, you know, it could be a twitch of an ear, uh, the dog scratching, or just a flexing of a muscle in the dog, and that's enough stimulation to get the dog's intent attention. And then... Um, I also have a, a videotape by George Hickox that um, where where he demonstrates uh, using the e-collar and teaching the dog how to turn uh, the e-collar off. And you know this this it's uh, George Hickox videotape is called Great Beginnings. And uh, you know so the 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 e-collar becomes more a reward system. Uh, than a punishment system, you know. You just anyway. There you go. Did that answer the question? I wondered yeah. all around there. Of course, it just begged another question. There are many people out there who don't know what the heck a videotape is, but but <laughs> hey, kids, look that up. Ask your mom. Well, it's actually it's actually a DVD. I'm sorry, it's not a video. It's a DVD. Uh, okay, <laughs> if anybody still has a video, oh, actually, I shouldn't say that. I probably have old TV shows of my own 
sitting in the <laughs> shop out there. But anyway, you get the idea, everybody, and it's absolutely true. Uh, in fact, I'll just relate to you. You know, I, I love my e-collar and I use it uh, mainly for tracking, but also for some commands. I use the, the tone and the vibration for some commands. But even the aversion part of that, even the, the stimulation you talk about, I, I have dialed it way back and it works probably better than the hot button used to work back in the day when you couldn't adjust it. So I'm testimony to that as well. Phil, I want to... Leave... Could I give you a brief example yeah. of your time? Yeah, of course there is. I, I mentioned the f fact that uh, Sunday afternoon we were having a hard time. I have a retriever trainer, which is, you know, it fires a 22 blank and shoots a, a bumper out. And so at the end of our training on Sunday afternoon, uh, my wife and I decided that we would launch some bumpers uh, for the pup using the retriever trainer. And, uh, of course, the intent was um, that we would put her on a woe and have her stand there and fire the bumper uh, and then release her to go retrieve the bumper, hopefully to hand. <clears throat> well, every time the... Uh, the uh, retriever trainer was fired she was off to the races and my wife was trying to hold her and 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 had the lead uh, in the suitcase fashion trying to hold her but she's a very strong young dog and it just was not working and so we both got pretty frustrated so we just quit yesterday um i i went out and i had run the dog and we were just having a great time and i got to the end of the day and i thought you know uh, this has been a good run today. I just, I just wonder. So on Sunday, I did not have an e-collar on the dog. So yesterday at the end of the run, uh, I got the e-collar out of the truck and I put it on the dog, violating one of my rules, which is to have the dog have the e-collar on for a couple hours so they forget that it's there. But anyway, I put it on the dog and I took her out and I woed her and I just used the tone on the e-collar. Yeah. And uh, I got uh, I got my blank pistol out, and I fired a blank as I threw the bumper, and she stayed through the whole thing. And I went, aha, because Sunday I thought she doesn't understand what woe means. And yesterday I figured out she does understand what woe means, but she's just not ready to do that yet. So it, it was just... And I didn't use any stimulation. I just used the tone on the e-collar. So anyway, it was a good lesson for me that I have a little bit more work to do in getting her to comply with the woe command. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I've learned that the hard way as well. The few times my wife has helped me with another dog a few years ago, um, it reminded me of the a title of, of another book that I got to read someday called The Other End of the Leash. And when you said the, your, your lead was in the suitcase <laughs> position, I was thinking the same thing. We were doing much the same you were. Uh, I want, okay, you just hold that dog hold it really <laughs> tight and i'm going to loft that bumper out and pop off a a, a a starter pistol and no matter what he does you just keep that keep the pressure on that lead and of course the dog is fighting that lead the whole time so yeah. that's that's part of the process it's com complicating the whole transaction uh, because the next day didn't have a helper 
put the check cord on the ground. He was still attached to it. No pressure. Poof. All of a sudden, steady to wing shot and fall. So there are, there are a lot of ways to think about this stuff. That's why I called my first bur- my first bur- book, What the Dogs Taught Me. Um, it sounds like they taught you a few things as well. <laughs> well, you know, that uh, you got time for another real short story? Phil, I could talk all day, but I've got, certainly got time for one more. Okay. I, I was uh, hunting quail down in... Uh, in Arizona, uh, down towards Sonoida, southeast of, uh, of Tucson. And it had been a long day. We were primarily looking for Mern's quail, and uh, it, it had been a long day, and it was warm, as it often is in the uh, late winter, early spring uh, down in Arizona. Anyway, we were coming back up a, uh, a canyon, a kind of a draw, and there were canyons coming down into the draw that we were in. And since it was late in the day, the, the wind was coming down those draws. And uh, I was walking along. I was tired. I didn't want to climb another hill. And I saw my dog pick up his head and turn, and he started up this ravine. And I thought, oh, man, Ace, I don't want to climb another hill up there. So I, fortunately, I had my GPS. And I could watch him on my GPS, and, and sure enough, he got up there two or three hundred yards and pointed. And I went up there, and he had found a cubby of Mern's quail. So what I learned from that was a little bit about the sensitivity of that dog's nose, because he got that scent uh, from those wind currents coming down that ravine into the canyon that we were in. Yep and followed it up and pointed those Mern's quail up there. So if I had not been watching him and alert uh, to what he was doing, how he was moving his head and how he kind of lifted his nose and went up that scent trail, um, I don't know. That was just a great lesson to me in, in terms of watching the dog and learning to trust my dog. That's one of the things... That seems to be something that I keep relearning it, is trust the dog because they know what they're doing. That's why I have them out there. Uh, there you go. I couldn't have said it better. Uh, Phil Swain, NAVDA judge, trainer, wild bird hunter. Guy knows his stuff. He's been around. Again, thank you for your service starting way back in the old days uh, during that um, conflict, but also for all your NAVDA judging over the many, many decades that I've been connected with you. We do, we do all appreciate it, and we do all appreciate the wisdom you've in, instilled in us today. Phil Swain, thanks again for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast. Have a great day. Thanks, Scott, and th- thanks for the honor of participating with you bye-bye bye the rest of you don't go anywhere we've got a few more things to cover that i think might be of interest to you um if you're looking to win a new shotgun for example i'll have an offer for you that you can't resist as they used to say the upland glossary is here with the letter h brought to you by finebirdhuntingspots.com where you can get the whole glossary but first let me talk to you a little bit about your dog's food let me give you a homework assignment read up 
on why your dog needs a quality mix of diverse proteins from the air, sea, and land sources. Where are you going to do that? D-R-T-I-M-S.com. Dr. Tim knows of what he speaks, and he's got it all right there in black and white where you can understand the reasons that you need poultry, fish, and red meat sources for protein. It's all about amino acids and how they process and which ones process at what rates in what places in a dog. Learn all about it at drtims.com. And while you're there, take a 30% discount on your first order. Just use the code Upland Nation. Free delivery all the time. drtims.com. And I know we've been talking a lot about dog training this time of year, especially young dog training. But the other thing that needs training maybe is your shooting eye. My buddy Tom and I are heading for Mid Valley Clays and Shooting School in a couple months. We're going to take some lessons from the pros over there who know what they're talking about. They're located in Western Oregon. So if you're passing through the state, and a lot of you will be, Park your RV at Mid Valley Clays and take a lesson or two or shoot any of the games, skeet, trap, sporting, or five stand. Might want to shop some of the new shotguns as well. MidValleyClays.com. Learn all about them. Of course, you can order your new shotgun there as well. MidValleyClays.com. Learn more about them and what they have to offer. And if you're passing through, Come on down and stay a while. We're up to the H in the Upland Nation glossary. And this week, H stands for HUP. If you're pointing dog guy, you might have heard it once in a while and wondered what the heck it was. If you're a flushing dog guy, I hope you know that it means, hey dog, stop and sit down and wait. Kind of like the woe command, but for a flushing dog, particularly spaniels is where that word came from. Hup, H-U-P. Works for flushing Labradors and Chesapeake Bay Retrievers as well. Any other retriever breeds, but hup is the command you use when you're still in the uh, kind of the early stages of training theoretically the dog should hop at the flush as well and that's for safety and obedience and um, to impress the judges at your next spaniel field trial hop and if you want the rest of the list go to findbirdhuntingspots.com it's all right there and uh, speaking of right there i asked in a recent survey um if you would take a newcomer newcomer hunting next season, and congratulations to the 52% who get a gold star for saying, of course. The 40% who said maybe may also want to listen to the 7% who said no, no way. That prompted the question, if you're in the no camp, I'm not judging you, but I just got to know, why wouldn't you take somebody hunting? And the comments were... Um, 
eye-opening, enlightening, and everything else. Uh, first off, congratulations to everybody who had the same philosophy as Jay Lawners, who said, I'm not in the no category. I take a high school student every year. Phil Stewart does the same. Philip Boswell reminds us that safety is the number one concern, and that is why he does not. Um, <laughs> thank you, Jennifer Burdett Maxwell. Uh, speaking of Hunter Vaughn, who's up there in the picture on that Facebook post, he's ready to come back. We had a blast too, didn't we, everybody, when we went to Flint Oak on that particular TV shoot. Uh, Troy Stark took a young deaf man hunting last season. His biggest concerns are always dog and safety issues. Slow down, be careful. And um, that seems to be the um, overriding concern. Jack Gable says even most seasoned upland bird hunters I know don't want to join us, and I rarely invite anyone anyway. Why? It's all for the dogs, and it's all training all the time. Okay, I get that. Yeah, so, you know, if you don't want to go, if you think somebody's expectation is shoot a lot of birds, but your expectation is to work with your dogs, got it. Tom Wiliez, I hope I said that right, Tom. He says he loves to take newbies after a good safety talk. And I'm just going to amplify that. Um, I, I did a few uh, videos. They're all at, at my YouTube channel as well on uh, recruiting and introducing a newcomer to hunting. And one of the things I talk about in one of those videos, I think maybe needs to be amplified a little bit here. Our dogs are our best ambassador for hunting. Um, even if they don't carry a shotgun, if you have somebody who's interested in this, uh, take them along and let them just enjoy the dog work. That might actually be a great strategy. I don't want to be underhanded about it, but you know, it's like, hey man, back in the day, hey, the first one's free. Uh, if you're too young to know what that's all about, ask your dad. But anyway, use your dog as an ambassador. Let them walk along. Maybe see how that all works. And hopefully you get a few birds up and dogs get a retrieve and you have a good time and you've made a convert who someday after they are instilled with the safety ethic will go hunting with you. And uh, after they've been hunting a while, maybe they need some help with their hearing. Audio Cardio, our newest sponsor, asks who your hero is. And if you nominate a hero, you may just take home a new Mossberg over and under shotgun. Yep. That's one of the prizes for somebody who nominates a hero, H-E-A-R-O-H, at my Wing Shooting USA facebook page uh, there's a post pinned to the top that'll take you to the link where you can enter to win that mossberg over and under shotgun a mentor spouse friend parent somebody has helped you over the years with your hunting career and maybe they need a little help with their hearing well i've told you about the audio cardio app it's easy it's simple and they could win themselves a year of that app subscription as well as you winning that shotgun it's all at the wing shooting usa facebook page
that'll about do it here at the Upland Nation podcast. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Phil Swain, for your wisdom, your service to all of us in the dog training and testing world. Sure appreciate it. Maybe someday we'll share a field that is is not affiliated with an ABDA test. That would be fantastic, too. Thank you to those who left ratings and reviews. I'll leave you all with this bit of wisdom from a likely source, Ann Landers. She says, don't accept your dog's admiration as conclusive evidence that you are wonderful. Couldn't agree more, Ann. Thank you for that wisdom, and thank you all for listening. I'm Scott Linden. Until we meet again next week, see you at the range. (laughs) 